In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, reserved with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S., 2022. Now here we go. Yeah, the passionate guys, all those top chefs, they all have that in common. They're all go-getters. They're all people, persons. They're great storytellers. They love design and they love people and chefs. Their employees just like being around them and they like to work for them. And so they don't have a lot of turnover. So their training really sticks, all that stuff. But they're really at it. They're still persistent. They stay with it, even if it's not working. How do I make it work? No, exactly, Will. And a lot of you know, the chefs that you mentioned, they're not retired. They still have the fire. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. Today's episode is a continuation of our last episode, delving into the actionable advice on how to build a restaurant in today's difficult market conditions. We pick up where we left off with Michael Benson, Mike Hatch, and Will Knox, discussing how to open a restaurant successfully, how to maintain the investment, and when the time comes, how to maximize the value we get when selling it. Well, and if we flash forward to opening, so I have yet to have an opening where there wasn't this oh shit moment. When I opened the bar in Hollywood, the way we conceptualized it in partnership with the designer that had designed the location, it just didn't flow right. We needed shelving for glassware, which is crazy in a bar concept that there was just, there was no overhead shelving for glassware. You know, bartenders need to work in a circle and there were certainly no circles around. And so I could also look at the fine dining concept and say we spent $80,000 on dumbwaiters that we never used. Not the best investment that could have been made in that location. Last example I'll give is within a week of opening, we realized that we needed a secondary walk-in cooler that we had to build out on the fly. There was no way we could operate the restaurant without this. Oh my God, brutal. And I know I'm not alone. We have these conversations all the time. And so as we look at planning relative to reality, what can restaurateurs do to not really brace, but better prepare for what live operations are going to look like? I think it's really important with your business plan, have a menu. 
and spend the time to really develop it. So many of restaurateurs, it's funny, they're figuring out their menu on the last stretch of their build. And that's why they come up short with their refrigeration needs and things like that. Because the chef that they hired at the end of the road says, hey, I want to do this, I want to do that, but you don't have the refrigeration for it or, or the dry storage for it. And everyone's scrambling to make it work. We're anticipating the amount of turns you're going to get in a day. And that's hopefully basing it on your success, not your failure. So you have to anticipate success and build for that. And do you have space for a second walk-in? Did you, Josh? Or did you have to go to uprights because you didn't have the space? No. So we had a large storage room, which then ultimately became a walk-in cooler. But I mean, we had to pull the glycol lines from one to the other because we had estimated this is now going to de-evolve into everyone figuring out that when I started this process, I knew very little about what I was doing. But I mean, it was an incredibly painful process. And understand that when we opened, we opened like everyone else that opens, right? We had 50 bucks in the account. And we opened because we needed to and because it had run over time and over budget, which kind of leads me to my next question for the group, which is, how do you run on time? How do you run on budget? How do you avoid change orders? For the people that are doing it right, what does it look like relative to what I would argue is a more common experience? Yeah, the people that aren't doing it right are off to a very poor start because they've decided they want to save money right from the initial planning. Most importantly, you have to find an architect, preferably one that has restaurant experience and is seasoned in putting together these types of jobs. I've seen a lot of clients using interior designers that are stamping architectural plans. And let me just say that that will put you behind the eight ball before the construction process even starts. And it will hurt during the construction process because that interior designer does not have any concept of construction and can't step in and resolve any issues that normally take place during that process. So what I would encourage all restauranters to do, especially the entrepreneurs that are just getting a first restaurant off the ground is identify an architect that you feel comfortable with, that you believe is going to handle your account with honesty and integrity and can provide you with accurate budgets. If you move in that direction, you're already at the 20 yard line. And at that point, the architect can steer you into kitchen designers like Hatch, like our company, and eventually segue you into contractors that once again have seasoning building restaurants as opposed to using a home builder, which will set your project back substantially and create a lot more change orders because they might be really good at what they do, but when you're building restaurants, you really don't want somebody doing it for the first time. There are a number of factors I've seen that have drained much needed capital, like your restaurant in downtown LA that should have gone to first couple months getting off to a strong start. So be very diligent on who you hire and make sure that they work as a team and you will have a successful start. With to your point, 
hiring an architect that actually has layout experience, restaurant experience is huge because there's so many things that they deal with. So typically when we start a restaurant, we lay out the front of house and the back of house, the the interior design and the kitchen and how both relate that we're unique in that there are very few companies that do kitchen design and interior design. So most people are forced to hire an architect who subs out the kitchen designer who subs out the interior designer. So you have three trades all trying to work together. So if you hired a cheaper architect and then you hired a cheaper designer and a cheap kitchen designer, you're going to have so many problems. I can't even tell you versus just hiring, just paying the money up front. And the architects that don't know how to do restaurants, they have problems with the roof penetrations, the hoods, the engineering of the whole thing. They hire engineers that don't understand the fans and the VFDs and the grease interceptors and all the different things that come with a restaurant. So they're starting so behind the eight ball. I highly encourage people to get a contractor hired early instead of bidding it out, which is what a lot of people want to do. You end up at the end of the road, you're over budget. Then you bid it out. Everyone wants to win the job. They come in low, right? Trying to get your business and then they change order you throughout the process. But if you bring in a guy early and you say, you're my guy, Mike gives you the kitchen pricing. I give you the front of house pricing right? We bring in a contractor, budgets the thing as well. Then you know all your costs pretty well up front at the schematic level. You know if you're over or under. Usually you're over. And then you take out some of the custom pieces. You simplify some of the sheet metal in the kitchen. You do those things, whatever you have to do to make it work. That way, by the time you're hiring all your staff, the numbers that you are over aren't going to put you aren't going to end your business because you're so far out of whack. So let's flash forward to opening. So now we're open. We've done our best to stress test the restaurant, but as is, I'm sure, always the case, there's room for improvement. I can't imagine that when you're done with the project, the day the restaurant opens, the restaurateur walks up to you, gives you a hug and a kiss, shakes your hand and says, I'll see you on the next one, right? It's probably a sea of calls and texts and emails for months after opening. How should restaurateurs, in your opinion, view these changes, triage these changes, determine what is a minor inconvenience versus what is something they need to delve what is arguably essential capital into now? I would say training is most critical. If your staff is properly trained and you've got somebody who's really leading the way, and that means the entrepreneur has never opened a restaurant before, but he sure as hell better have somebody who has, who knows how to train, that gets along with the public and gets along with staff and can communicate. Training is everything. Yeah, that's your first impression. We always say at our company, our designs get them through the front door for the first time, but the food and the service keep them there and keep them coming back. And I don't know about you guys, but it's expensive to eat out. And if you have a bad experience, even if the food's good or you like to look at the restaurant, it makes you not want to come back. And so, yeah, to your point, training is super important. Yeah, I agree. To take it a step further, and I'm sure Mike will totally agree with me, training as to utilization of the equipment. All of the manufacturers are willing to send people in to train your staff and show them how to maximize the use of the equipment 
if you're willing to get everyone together at one time. And then another issue, which we see all the time is we'll get a call like a month or two later that the equipment's down. And 90% of the time, it's based on the fact they weren't cleaning it properly or they weren't cleaning it at all in some cases. I hate to say it. The other issue is on the warranty side. The manufacturers in our industry overall do a great job of manufacturing the equipment. However, a lot of these companies are public companies. Sometimes they go out and they source parts and do things to try to reduce the cost of the equipment for the consumer and also increase their margins. And especially since COVID, we've never opened up a restaurant and unfortunately not had issues right away with new equipment. And I certainly understand the frustration that a lot of owners have that they've spent a ton of money for new equipment and some of it's either not starting up or having issues right away. So be prepared for the warranty process. We're there to help you. The manufacturers are there to help you, but it's something that you're going to face. We get a lot of callbacks for lighting, lighting in the LED world. If you have a big restaurant, no matter what the size, since the integration of LED lighting, different transformers that they need and require, and the dimming systems, maybe you took over a second gen restaurant, but it had an old dimming system and you put all the new LED lights in there and they're all flickering and they all shut off. You're trying to open and do a good first impression and everyone's screaming at each other. I see that one on one out of four jobs, it seems like. And electricians don't even understand how to wire a zero to 10 light fixture. Our designers are specking a zero to 10 in a remodel where you have to run a fourth wire and they, they don't have access to run that fourth wire. Just things like that. It's a very common callback. We try to support our clients the best we can. There's tricks too. If they're stuck in one of those situations, you can put lenses on things to bring the light levels down or work with the manufacturers to help them put something in line to help the dimming system work properly. But that's frustrating stuff, just like the equipment not working. Yeah, exactly. And it kind of brings me back, Josh, to the construction process and the times we've talked, what you went through, of some of the restaurants that you opened. And it just goes back to choosing the right vendors, especially the construction company. We've seen a lot of cases where the contractor to save money did not hire the proper electricians, the proper plumbers, and it segued right into the opening. Also, too, what we've seen is contractors fall behind, the clients are irate, and they're asking us to bring in the equipment and install it when the site is not even close to being ready. I mean, we had a client that wanted us to bring equipment into a project one time, a fast casual, where there wasn't a roof, but it was the middle of the winter. We've had contractors push us to bring equipment in when there were no walls or cement wasn't dry. Avoid any type of rushing of the project. Don't put a square peg in a round hole. You've invested in a Porsche. Would you put a Porsche, a $500,000 Porsche, into a garage that still wasn't built? And it goes back to everything Will has talked about and Mike has talked about on this podcast, and that is correct decisions will allow you to be successful. But if you trip 
in the planning and construction process right through to the opening, it's going to lower your percentage of success. And in a lot of cases, you'll be out within a year. I've had clients come to me and say, why is it taking so long to get a great location? I said, because the A operators are staying in business. The Bs are out. So the A's know what they're doing. And it's just very, very difficult. And it's worth the wait to get the right doctor. It's worth the wait to get the right surgeon. Without a doubt, it will. I'm sure you've seen it many, many times. The bees that you talk about that were out, it didn't necessarily have to happen. They should still be in business. And it was a variety of factors we're discussing today that they just didn't execute on. Hey, Will, do you find that if you had a very passionate restaurateur they had a great business plan, a floor plan, some imagery to go along with their new concept. They don't have a concept. They might have been a chef somewhere with a pretty good name. Are they going to get a TI allowance from a landlord? If so, how often do you see that happening? I think the landlords are very loath to give out cash, first of all. If it's a corporate landlord, a developer, they may get perhaps on a second gen $25, $30, $40, maybe a foot, depending on where it is. But if it's a mom and pop landlord, they're not giving away money. They may give you rent abatement during construction. But if you're Wolfgang Puck, then they want to team up with you. But if you're not, and you're Will Knox, then sorry, Charlie, got a great concept. Put your money where your mouth is. If you have a great team, I'm going to maybe give you a little bit better concession on the security. Maybe I'm asking five years security, you know, literally you're securing the rent personally. Well, we'd like to keep our clients off the personal guarantee and somehow work with another kind of vehicle, whether it's a letter of credit, whether it's a burn down after a year, there could be any number of ways to do it. But the landlords are very, very suspicious because the restaurant business has a high failure rate no matter who you are. So you could be really buttoned up unless you've got a great team. And I'm a Giants fan. So if the Dodgers are doing it, they may still fail with Cody Bellinger out there in right field. I don't know. It could be any number of factors. But ultimately, the landlords want as much security in terms of personnel and cash behind it. And that's where it comes down to who is the operating partner? Who has that background? Who has that lineage? Who has that seasoned ability that gives the landlord confidence? And then the landlord may give you some concessions, much more willing to, let's put it that way. So, Will, let me ask you a question. So we fast forward, right? So the restaurant opens, it's super successful. It's been around for 10 years. The owner operators, they want out. They're ready to sell. And they still have time left on their lease. What makes for a successful sale of a restaurant for someone that's looking to buy out a concept? What are the levers of value that people are evaluating when looking to buy somebody's restaurant? Well, there's two types of buyers. There's one that's going to buy the concept called Josh's Place, right? And Josh's place has been operating for 15 years. There's five years left on the initial term. Plus, Josh has great options set up. Or maybe the options are simply at market, and that's the way of the world. And But you have an under-market lease, let's say, because you negotiated it 10 years ago, and 
didn't call for any more escalations and say 3% in today's highly inflationary time and rents are sky high in Josh's area. Okay, so there's value to Josh's place. If I want to buy Josh's business is one thing. Maybe I want to buy that cash flowing positive business, but maybe Josh's business is in the toilet. Then the value is only in the assets. So that's a second buyer. Who's buying the assets at Josh's place? All right. And I'll pay you for your furniture, your fixtures, your equipment. Oh, it turns out your kitchen is 10 years old. I have to completely renovate it. The air conditioning needs help. I've got to go to the landlord for that. I'll give you X amount of dollars for your liquor license or your permits. All those factors come into what's called the bulk sale, the asset sale. So that's the buyer. Let's say Will Knox wants to buy Josh's place. But if Josh's place is cash flowing positive, let's just say he just wants to sell it to Will and Will wants to buy an existing place called Josh's, then we may put, let's say you're earning $100,000 at the end of the day before taxes, we call it EBITDA, earnings before interest and taxes, okay? Depreciation. Amortization, yep. Amortization, thank you for the A. I'm just, at a moment. I got you. I had a lapse there. Maybe it's because I'm a Giants fan. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) You have your number, your $100,000 net, let's say. We typically would put a three on that, a number of three times your earnings. And you might ask $300,000 for your cash flowing business. Now, you know, if it wasn't cash flowing positive, and you didn't have that story, or I don't really want to buy Josh's place, but I want that key. I want that location because you got a prime corner in downtown Encinitas. It's worth it to me maybe to spend $300,000, even though I'm paying more money than I should for your furniture, fixtures, equipment, et cetera, because that key is very valuable because I couldn't get that location otherwise. And you challenge me, you'd say, you know what, Will? You go find my corner, okay, and you find it equipped, which you can't. You start with four walls. It'll cost you $500 a square foot for my 2,000 square feet, and there you are. That's a million dollars, and I only want 300000 from you. Let's go. That sounds interesting, Will, in the sense that restaurants are selling about three times EBITDA. It's a lot less expensive to buy one, it sounds like to me than to build one or put lipstick on an existing space. Is that correct? Well, you're going to put lipstick on an existing space, but to really build from scratch is very expensive. That's why I don't favor the generation. Although some might say, oh, I could start from scratch instead of paying Josh's $300,000, but it's going to cost you a million dollars to build out Josh's place from scratch. And Josh has done the heavy lifting because put in the permits, he's gotten the liquor license, he's gotten everything properly in place. And then I'm going to put some more fine tuning on the cosmetic rehab because I'm clever. Maybe I'll spend another $200,000 and be in a new concept, prime downtown Encinitas or Carlsbad or Solana Beach or Rodeo Drive. So it really has a lot to do with what model you're working with. Are you working to acquire the assets only because you're going to go out and do Billy's Burgers or are you going to do Josh's joint? 
there's two different in the habit burger let's just say the habit was giving up its lease after seven years they determined that the ojai market that they thought is not going to happen well they're going to sell that location to somebody else that thinks they can do it better than habit burger and they'll they'll recoup some but they're certainly not going to recoup all where i'm going to take this is that i think that we're going to see more sales of restaurants just because of the inflation and the development costs skyrocketing. I mean, for our business, because we offer all different channels of work for our clients, I'm not concerned about a downturn. To me, it's a way for that large line of people. There's still a huge pent up demand of entrepreneurs and people that want to get in the restaurant industry from outside of the industry itself. I mean, there's a lot of successful people that have made great deals of money, whether it's in tech, whether it's in finance, whether it's in manufacturing, and they want to open a restaurant. And so to me, that avenue that Will just discussed makes a lot of sense. And I think it will eventually elevate our industry to a much higher level because those people that make purchases of existing restaurants are probably going to scale because they're going to have capital to go to the next level if they're successful with their concept. I thought before COVID hit that we were over restaurants, that there was truly going to be a restaurant recession, which I think there has been, and COVID accelerated that. On the other hand, I'm encouraged that there are people that want to continue to open up new concepts because I guess showbiz never dies. I mean, the restaurant business is show business because people get into it because they like the idea of immediate gratification. If you're the entrepreneur, why'd you do it, Josh? Oh, for showmanship. That's really what it was. I mean, for me, I saw a bar, I saw a restaurant as a stage. So it is a place to create community activation. And I've said from the beginning, I've never cared about food never been that passionate about beverage. I think the people that are passionate about food are foodies. And I think people that are passionate about people become restaurateurs. And for me, it was always about creating a sense of community, community activation. When you look at the concepts that I created, when you look at where I created them, it was always, and I think that this is something that is largely ill-considered by the general public, but restaurants are investments in community. We obviously need that mutual investment, that investment in return from the people that live and work in these areas. But it's me, as an example with Pru and Proper, investing close to $2 million into the arts district or into the fashion district, two blocks from Skid Row, saying, I envision a better future for this neighborhood and I'm willing to invest in it today, hoping for a brighter future later. No doubt, Josh. Restaurants in certain areas of the country, especially the urban areas, represent gentrification. And I'm an 80s guy, and I remember the world before cell phones and laptops and technology. And I think people are in even greater need in 2023 for human interaction because there's just not enough of it in this decade, as opposed to earlier decades, which Will can touch on and Mike can touch on. Oh, you mean I'm an old guy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not calling you an old guy. I think we're all old guys. Maybe that's the 
just after coming out of COVID, I mean, it was so fun to go out to a restaurant again and see people and talk to your waitress and not, I wanted to sit down and have a drink and stay a while. <laughs> well, and I get asked a lot, aren't you a foodie? And I say, no, I'm a restaurant guy. And I like the idea and have ever since I was very little going to different environments and going into these different concepts, whether it was, I grew up in San Francisco, if I was lucky enough to go to the captain's cabin at, at Trader Vic's. It was a very cool South Pacific vibe. Or even going into Lazy Dog now. I like just sitting out there and just having a burger and just watching the world go by at the mall, wherever it might be. I know Will's into fine dining as far as his business is concerned, but there wasn't a happier guy in Ohio when he heard that we were going to start to build a habit in his hometown. <laughs> Here even this week on Next Door, People are just gabbing about the fact that the habit's coming into town. They can't wait for this. And why is it taking so long? And I'm saying I kind of stay out of these conversations because it, it'll come back to bite you. But these people finally, a couple of them said, permits, permits, permits. That human interaction might help you meet somebody new that becomes a close friend, becomes your wife, becomes a business partner. I mean, as executives in the hospitality industry, it's even that much more important that we get people out there. It's good for your mental health. I remember as a kid watching Cheers and Sam Malone and that whole crew. And to me, that's what hospitality should be all about. The other thing I wanted to ask Will, though, he's known in the Los Angeles circles as Mr. Restaurant. He was famous for putting Wolfgang Puck and his first restaurant on Sunset, which a lot of people don't know. Being an 80s guy, I heard a lot of stories about the first few years of Spago and just the fun that took place there every night. I'm really shocked, Will, and I know you're a diverse talent, maybe you're doing it, that somebody hasn't written a, a screenplay about what took place there when it first opened and maybe have turned it into a movie. Well there's a great book out called Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. And the author's name is Andrew Friedman. And I've wanted to go to that guy to write a screenplay because part of my life is entrepreneurial, creativity, blah, blah, blah. So that chronicles the rise of the creative chefs in the 80s, the Michael McCarty's, the Wolfgang Puck's, the Nancy Silvertons, et cetera, and that world of the 80s in L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, New York, the real nexus of how these celebrity chefs really were happening. And I agree with you. I think there's a whole whole world out there that could be exploited cinematically. But let's talk to Netflix about it. Maybe they'll back it. We've got to come with a screenplay, though. See, there again, you've got to have the operator, the screenwriter. You've got to have that product. You got to have that menu. You've got to have that team. Otherwise, forget it. Yeah. And the thing that I've noticed, Will, from all those talented chefs that you just mentioned, I've been to Brad Metzger's LA Chefs Conference since the inception. I've seen a lot of those people on previous panels. They really had a good time doing it. I mean, it wasn't only a job and a lifestyle. But when they reflect back to those times, there's a love and a passion that emanates from the conversations of past years that I wish I could have been a part of it because 
it doesn't seem like in 2023, people running restaurants are having as much fun. It's definitely isolated, but I would agree with you. I kind of work with the three Ps, passion, persistence, and patience, and also don't panic. So, But those guys that are successful still have that passion. And how does a marriage still exist? You got to have a certain amount of passion. Yeah, the passionate guys, all those top chefs, they all have that in common. They're all go-getters. They're all people, persons. They're great storytellers. They love design and they love people and chefs. Their employees just like being around them and they like to work for them. And so they don't have a lot of turnover. So their training really sticks, all that stuff. But they're really at it. They're still persistent. They stay with it, even if it's not working. How do I make it work? No, exactly, Will. And a lot of you know, the chefs that you mentioned, they're not retiring. They still have the fire. It's really inspirational to see a lot of those people still out there working as hard as they did in their 20s. So there is a reward if you're successful in this industry. And I think it just allows your life across the board to be happier when you enjoy what you're doing. And the money will follow. Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins, and the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie, and Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Michael Benson, Mike Hatch, and Will Knox. For more information on these gentlemen and their businesses, please check out the links in the show notes. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.